0: Do you this morning have the righteousness of God? You see, when God looks down from heaven and he sees every individual here and listening to me, he either sees a saint or a sinner. He either sees you inside of Christ, identified in his righteousness, or outside of Christ, identified in your righteousness.
1: Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, Bible-teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is Senior Pastor at Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in Chapter 3 of our study of the Book of Romans, and having already looked at the depravity of man, we are now examining the righteousness of God. As we pick up, Pastor Brogy is making the point that the Bible tells us that there is none righteous aside from God Himself. To make the point, we draw from the book of Philippians, in which the Apostle Paul, as an illustration of his unrighteousness, lists his credentials, which by human standards would be highly respected, but in comparison to God, are absolutely worthless.
0: This is what Paul's doing. He's taking pride in a sense of his ancestry. Circumcised the eighth day, just as Moses specified. A true Jew of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Then he adds... A Hebrew of Hebrews. So now he is moving from the traits which he had inherited to the traits which he had earned. A Hebrew of Hebrews. Now remember, where was Saul from? Saul of Tarsus it's a city in Asia Minor and unlike many Jews who were scattered during the diaspora who lost their ability to speak Hebrew who became unfamiliar with the Hebrew customs Paul held to the traditions his native language was Hebrew unlike the Jews in Acts 6 who were Hellenized Jews, who spoke Greek, who understood more about Greek culture than they did Jewish culture. Paul understood Jewish culture. When I was a boy growing up and you wanted to describe someone deeply committed in the church I was raised, you would say, he or she is more Catholic than the Pope. That's the thought here. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Jews, Jews. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Notice next. As to the law, a Pharisee. Unlike the Sadducees, who had a low view of the law, who only believed the first five books of the Old Testament were inspired, and even then they took a very loose view of the scriptures, they were the liberals of the day, Paul was a Pharisee. And the Pharisees believed the whole of the Old Testament to be the inspired, and errant word of God. Of course, the problem with the Pharisees in the first century is they added their traditions to the scripture, and in the process, they often invalidated the scripture. And so the Lord Jesus in the Gospels repudiated their method of adding to the scriptures, and he called them hypocrites. But Paul, having been raised a phar- having become a Pharisee, would have venerated the scriptures. He would have tithed his income. He would have prayed. He would have fasted. He would have followed the traditions. Now, not every Jew was a Pharisee. There's several million Jews at the time when Paul is penning his letter. And out of the several million Jews, there's only 6,000 who are given the status of being a Pharisee. It's not an Old Testament thing. It's something that arose, this group of men, between the two Testaments. And so Paul, when he looked at these Judaizers who trusted in the flesh, in their own works, in their circumcision, he said, I'm not just any Jew, I'm a Pharisaic Jew. And then he adds, as to zeal... A persecutor of the church. I'm not just a Pharisee. I'm a Pharisee with zeal. And this zeal can be seen in the fact that I have persecuted Christians. He was so zealous, so zealous for the things what he believed to be true. He persecuted those who did not agree with his interpretation. And so when Paul describes himself, or excuse me, when Luke describes him in Acts 8, he says that Paul ravaged the church of God like a wild beast. When Paul describes himself before King Agrippa, he says, And as I punished them often in the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them, these believers, even to foreign cities." And so if Judaizers could take pride in their zeal, Paul far more. Would they persecute the Christians like Paul? Not on the same level. Paul was unique. He was hated, and he hated Christians. So Paul says, you want to see a zeal for the law? I've got it. Been there, done it far more than you ever did. Now, religious people can be mean. And Paul, before he was saved, was mean. I heard the story of a little boy who killed a mouse, and he came running into the house. He says, Mama, look, I, I beat this mouse with a broomstick, and then I ran over him with my bike, and then I stomped on him, and about that time, he saw the pastor come into the room listening, but then Jesus called him home to be with himself. <laughs> that's what religion does. It's very often mean, and that's the way Paul was as to zeal a persecutor, as to righteousness which is in the law, notice, found blameless, not sinless. No Judaizer would have believed that anyone was sinless, but blameless, and there was a difference. In the broad sense of Jewish tradition as observed in his life, he would be found blameless. No one could question Paul's standard of commitment to the law. No one could look at Paul and say, oh, he's a hypocrite, he's a drunk, he's an adulterer, he's a coveter. No, he was blameless in his application of the law. He was at the top of his class as Judaism would have judged him. So what is he doing? He's describing his pre-conversion state here. But there came a day when Paul had an awakening... And there on that Damascus road, when he had a glimpse of God Almighty and all of his holiness, he saw that his righteousness was as a filthy rag. And so he will say in verse 7, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Having placed all of his assets on one side of the scale... Things the Judaizers would have loved. And he picked up all those treasured gains. And when he looks at Christ, he said, I count them as a loss. Those things that he once greatly venerated, he saw as a loss and his conversion turned his life upside down. So he says in verse eight, more than that, that's an important phrase because he's drawing a contrast here between the religious credits that he had and knowing the Lord. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Did you get that? of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And the word here for know is a word of intimacy. and In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, it's the same word that is used when it says Adam knew Eve. And God uses that word in the New Testament to describe the personal intimate relationship that a person can have in knowing the Lord. It's the same word that Jesus uses in John 17 when he says eternal life is knowing God and Christ whom you have sent. Millions and millions of Americans today know many facts. They know that Jesus is God the Son, that he died on the cross, that he was risen from the dead. And so because they know those facts, they think they know God. James 2.19 describes demons and their knowledge that they have a very orthodox belief as it comes down to the nature of God. Even in one gospel passage when a demon speaks, the demon says, you, Jesus of Nazareth, you are the Holy One of God. It's an accurate confession. In fact, very often when demons speak in the Acts of the Gospels, they speak absolute truth, fantastic theology. And some people think because they have a good theology, they know the Lord. But you can know the facts without knowing the living God. And so Paul says, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of their surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. All the awesome privileges I have, I count them but skabala, not hemgala, but skabala, rubbish, dung, filth. Now I know we've got evangelical pastors and I hope you're listening because some of you are going to leave Beaufort and you're going to go to some other city and now it has become more and more fashionable for evangelical pastors to be all things to all men to swear in the pulpit. We have a leader in South Carolina who does that who pastors one of the largest churches. He curses in the pulpit and they use this text of scripture to justify it listen just because a man says he's evangelical doesn't mean that he is and you cannot justify swearing in the scripture Paul's point is listen all those things that I thought were precious when I compare it to knowing Jesus Christ it's waste, it's dung, it's refuge it's rubbish, it's worthless trash depending on your translation he had an utter disdain for all those things that he thought could make him righteous in God's sight. Now think of verse 9 in light of the verse we're trying to illustrate. And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. I hope that's in your heart today. I hope that in your heart today that you are not trying to establish your own righteousness that you can achieve by the things you do but you will receive that righteousness that is not based on the law but is given as a gift when you come in faith through Jesus Christ. Now go back to Romans 3. That's the illustration. In Romans 3 in verse 21. Paul is describing the righteousness of God. And he says here it is apart from the law. But now apart from the law. The righteousness of God has been manifested. You see those two words apart from. It's one word in Greek. Kores. And It's a very strong word in the original. You could say absolutely apart from the law. In fact, that same word is used in Hebrews chapter 4 when it says Jesus Christ was tempted and all things as we are co-wreets. There we translate it yet without, or you could say absolutely apart from any sin. Wherever you cut the Bible, the truth is clear and evident that man is not saved by the things that he does. Now, just quickly and finally we'll add, God's righteousness is consistent with the law. It's revealed through the law. It originates apart from the law, but it is consistent with the law. Verse 21, but now apart from the law the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets. This righteousness that comes apart from the law is not something new it is something old. It has been revealed, the King James says. It has been made known, the New International says. The Net Bible says it has been disclosed. It was disclosed in the past because it's taught in the Old Testament. Remember when Paul is writing Romans, the New Testament is still being written, and they didn't call what today we call the Old Testament the Old Testament, they either referred to it as the Scriptures, or the Law and the Prophets, or sometimes the Law and the Psalm and the Prophets, or sometimes just the Law. That's what they called their Old Testament, but here Paul uses two designations, the Law, which refers to the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch or the Torah, and the prophets, the rest of the Bible, teach that a man is saved apart from works, right after man sins. And God comes into the garden asking, where are you, Adam? Not the voice of a detective, but the voice of a loving, searching God, because man is hiding and rebelling, because there's none who seeks God, no, not one. He finds Adam and Eve having sown fig leaves on themselves. And so God gives the very first gospel message in all the Bible. I preached a sermon one year at Christmas. And I call it the first Christmas message in the Bible. And I preached Genesis 3.15. And there God made a declaration that he would send a Savior who would crush the serpent's head. And then after he made that declaration, the Bible says in Genesis 3.21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife. And clothe them. The first religious act of man was to sew fig leaves together. But then God's first redemptive act is to take an innocent animal and to shed its blood and to give man garments of skin. Why? Because leather's better than leaves? Of course not, because God has already said that the day you eat from the tree, you deserve to die. God says the wages of sin is death. God says the soul that sins must die. And since the life is in the blood without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so God, right off, at the start, was teaching the concept of substitution, that someone must die. And what Abel did, it was the confession of his faith, much like our confession his baptism, it was symbolically pointing to the fact that he believed in Jesus who would come. And so when you step into Genesis 4, you see two brothers, Abel and Cain, both making a sacrifice. Some have said that one was accepted because his sacrifice had a different origin, that Cain's came from the ground that was cursed. Well, so did the lamb. That also came from this creation. And all the creation was cursed. Some say that Cain brought his very best, and Abel bought his second best, and therefore one was accepted and the other was not. That's what we call eisegesis, reading into the passage. We don't know that. More than likely, Cain brought the best of his turnips and the crops that he had. No, the Bible says in Hebrews 11, Abel came in faith. Where does faith come from? Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of God. What had God revealed up to this time? Nothing about the origin of the sacrifice. Nothing about the quality of the sacrifice. But the kind of sacrifice that blood must be shed. Where did Abel learn that? Either from his parents or from direct revelation from God. You say, Pastor, you think Abel really understood the necessity of blood, that it was a picture of Messiah? I know it for a fact. You say, how can you be so sure? Because the New Testament reveals something about Abel that we don't learn in the Old Testament, and that is that Abel was a prophet. And so Jesus indicted the religious leaders of his day with the blood of Abel, the first prophet, to the last prophet of Israel, Zechariah. And we learn Abel being a prophet from Peter's words of him, of Christ. All the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin. And so all the way through Genesis, you see that beautiful picture there on Mount Moriah. And page after page after page and illustration after illustration, we saw the need for redeeming blood. And you come into Exodus and all the way through Deuteronomy and rivers of blood flow through the scriptures. Then you come into the rest of the Bible called the prophets. One of which Paul has already quoted when he quoted Habakkuk in 117. That the righteous will live by faith. That a man is saved not by works but by faith. And so by precept, by illustration. Even in great gospel preaching Old Testament texts like Isaiah 53. God taught that salvation was apart from any works. And when we come to the fourth chapter. He will illustrate it through Abraham and David. Even David the Bible says was a prophet. Acts 2 refers to him as a prophet. And even David prophesied. In passages like Psalm 22 where he speaks of Christ, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint and my heart is like wax. It is melted within me. He will write, a band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them and my clo- for my clothing and they cast lots. He prophesies that a thousand years before Jesus leaves heaven and comes to earth. Why? Because he is teaching a truth that is found in Moses and all of the Old Testament. That salvation is apart from the law. Luther was raised in a church where they said in essence a man is not saved by faith alone but it is faith plus works. And Luther as he began to see the inadequacies of the church that he was in and the corruption sought to find truth. And so from November of 1515 to September of 1516 there in the university at Wittenberg he taught the book of Romans and his eyes were opened up he writes in his preface these words as he speaks of God's righteousness. He said, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans. And nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. At last, by the mercy of God, Meditating night and day until I grasp the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through sheer grace and mercy he justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise the whole of Scripture took on new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it had become inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage, the one we're studying today, became to me the gateway into heaven. What a testimony. Let me ask you three questions by way of application as we close. Number one, do you this morning have the righteousness of God? You see, when God looks down from heaven and he sees every individual here and listening to me, he either sees a saint or a sinner. He either sees you inside of Christ, identified in his righteousness, or outside of Christ, identified in your righteousness. There's no in-between status. You're either saved or you're not, you're either born once, or you're born twice. You need the righteousness of God, and before you leave these doors this morning, you can have them. You can have this righteousness because it is not earned. It is humbly received by grace through faith. Secondly this morning, if you have Christ's righteousness, if you have been saved, when you think of yourself Do you think of yourself based on your performance or Christ? How do you think of yourself? You see, the problem with the church at Galatia is not that they understood salvation and then abandoned it. It's not that they thought, well, one time I was saved by grace through faith, and now I've adopted a different gospel. No, the problem with the church at Galatia, they understood the gospel. They understood salvation by grace. What they were messed up on was sanctification. See, these false teachers had come into the church, and by application, the Galatians began to think, oh, I'm justified by grace, but now I am sanctified by grace and works. And so Paul will say to them, are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you being made perfect in the flesh? And so what will he do in Galatians? He will take them back to the beginning and he will remind them how God saved them. And on this basis they are to be sanctified. Now let me make it very practical. How do you think of yourself when you fail or when you do what's right? When you do what's right, do you see yourself as more righteous? When you fail, do you see yourself as more unrighteous? You see, you are either seeing yourself in Christ, which will lead you to depend upon the Spirit and the strength that He alone can give, or you see yourself in your own performance righteousness. We don't work towards righteousness as believers. We're working from righteousness. We're not working towards acceptance, but from it. And when you understand that, it liberates you and it teaches you of your need to depend upon God, the Holy Spirit. Third, and finally, I would just ask, are you sharing this righteousness? If you've been saved, there's a ministry that you have been given. And it's called the ministry of reconciliation. Listen, the best news this world will ever hear is how they can be reconciled, made right with God. Good news is not to stand on and to sit on and to monopolize. It is to share. It is to tell other people. And listen, there is a world that is headed towards an eternal precipice called the wrath of God. And God says that he was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. He has entrusted to us the word of reconciliation. Because men cannot become Christians by looking at your life. They must hear the message. Are you sharing it? Do you see we, not just Paul, but we in the Corinthians, and by extension, we as all Christians have been given this ministry. Our mouths that were once closed in guilt must be opened in praise and proclamation. To deliver a lost world with the only hope they have. And it is the gospel of Christ that will give them righteousness. Let's stand together for prayer. Now our Father, I thank you this morning for the Apostle Paul. I thank you for the Holy Spirit. The one who inspired him to write and to give us this portion of scripture. Thank you, Father, this morning that we can have a standing of acceptance... But I am reminded again that there is no in-between. We're either saved or we're not. And I pray today, Father, for someone who is here who is uncertain that if the trump of God were to sound and Jesus were to descend, that they would be taken up. They are uncertain whether they would meet Jesus in salvation or in judgment. They'd like to go to heaven, but they're uncertain. And your word says because they've never rested, never trusted, never believed And the righteousness that is received and not earned. Friend, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And like any gift, it's not something you pay for. It's something you humbly receive. Would you say today, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I am unrighteous. But in faith, I trust you to be my Lord. Help someone today, Father, to do that. And for those of us who have done that, who have been born again and the Spirit bears witness to our spirit that we've become children of God and plant deep into our soul that we have a new righteousness in Christ that teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live holy and righteously in this present age. Thank you that we're not working towards a new standing, but we have an eternal standing that is unchanged, that we're saints of God. Oh God, may our lips be open in praise and worship. May we be prostrate before you in adoration for what you've done. But may our lips be open in proclamation, even today, even this week, asking you for opportunities to share. May we do it because an hour is coming when no man will have the opportunity. Help us to be faithful stewards of the gospel. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.
1: To listen again to today's study from Romans chapter 3 entitled The Righteousness of God, visit our website at searchthescriptures.org and search for program ROM12. You can also listen to this or any of Dr. Brogy's messages on our Search the Scriptures app, available from the iTunes Store and Google Play Store. And, of course, you can always call us at 877-787-7478 and simply request a CD or DVD copy of whatever message you like. However you contact us, please consider a financial gift to help sustain this teaching ministry. Your support allows us to purchase time on radio stations, as well as providing us the means to be heard all over the world through the Internet. Just call 877-787-7478 and ask about making a single gift or about becoming a monthly foundation partner. Thank you. Tomorrow, we begin a look at man's biggest problem. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.